grace the cheeks of the wheezing priests, you seafaring Jonathans. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. How are you getting on? What's the crack? I hope you're having a pleasant time. Despite uh, the Goblin of Strange and Uncertain Times, there is, this week, there's little glimmers of hope. Lockdown is ending slightly. Today, I went for my first, uh, my first run, which was hampered by gridlock traffic in Limerick. I'm not a fan of gridlock traffic when I'm going for a run. But I just noticed today, for the first time in three months, there was a certain part of my run whereby I had to press the traffic light. And I didn't have to do that in three months. I was just able to run across the road. Today, I had to press the traffic lights and I realised... And the reason I realised is because I don't like touching surfaces for obvious reasons. But I pressed a a traffic light and I'm like, fuck, because there's traffic. Because lockdown was eased today, a lot of people got out of their houses to go to shops and other businesses that are open. They're not wearing fucking masks. Nobody's wearing masks, unfortunately. Everyone needs to start wearing cotton face masks, alright? If everyone's not doing it, it doesn't work. It's that simple. We can reduce the possibility of transmission by 75% if everybody wears a mask. Those are the facts. Wear a fucking cotton mask. Risk being seen as a weirdo. Be the person in the queue with the mask. Fuck what anyone thinks. It'll actually build your self-esteem as well. I said this a few podcasts back. When you wear a cotton mask, you are doing the right thing. Okay? So you can you can say to yourself, I am doing the right thing. I'm keeping other people safe. So if people stare at you strange or you feel embarrassment, you know it's like, I don't have to feel embarrassment. I'm doing the right thing. And these people who stare at me strange because I'm wearing a cotton face mask, that's their insecurity. They feel insecure because... They kind of want to be the person who has the confidence to wear the face mask too. But instead of acknowledging that, they project it onto you as, who's that weirdo with the face mask on? Build your self-esteem. Sit with the anxiety. Sit with potential disapproval from people looking at you and going, what a strange person with a face mask. Sit with that. You'll keep other people safe. You'll keep yourself safe. And you'll build your self-esteem and confidence. That's a guarantee. That practice of sitting with disapproving eyes and standing out and maybe someone thinking you're strange. Because you're doing the right thing, you will build your confidence and self-esteem by by sitting with that disapproval. So wear a face mask, please. Protect us all from the goblin of strange and uncertain times. But uh, yeah, look, there's little glimmers of hope. I'm feeling optimistic. I, I, do you know what I'm really looking forward to? Like restaurants are going to be open from June 29th. So I can't fucking, I can't wait to sit down in a restaurant and have a lovely meal and enjoy every bit of it because of the sheer novelty of sitting down in a restaurant. And I can't wait to order a freezing cold pint and to drink it slowly and savour it because I haven't had 
a freezing cold pint from a tap in a long time and to have it brought to me. I haven't had that and I miss it and I can't wait to savour that once again. And... But... I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic and hopeful. So pubs are going to be allowed open if they quote-unquote serve a substantial meal. Now, I did a podcast a little over a month ago and the podcast name was Soda Jerk. I think it's my, it's my favourite podcast of the past four months anyway. I really enjoyed that. I liked that podcast. But... Soda Jerk is about the strange relationship that pubs have had when they've been forced to serve food. And I made two comparisons. 1990s Ireland, during the rave scene, in order for nightclubs to stay open, they had to serve a substantial meal. So what happened is that you'd go to the nightclub on ecstasy and you'd be given mandatory chicken curry at 11 o'clock. Nobody ate it. There was food fights. It would spill on the ground. And it was clearly just a gesture. No one was eating it. The nightclub knew they weren't serving food. They were merely trying to get past the law. And I also made a comparison with 1890s New York, where they tried to shut down saloons and Irish bars. And they said, if you want to stay open as a saloon, you must serve a meal with alcohol. So the saloons in New York in 1890s started serving people sandwiches that were made out of rubber. So you'd order a rubber sandwich, not eat it, and then get your pint. We're now presented with this exact same situation again. If a pub wants to open on the 29th of June, they must now effectively operate as a restaurant, which presents a big challenge. They have to serve, quote-unquote, a substantial meal if you're to be allowed buy a pint. There's a huge there's a huge opportunity there. There's a massive, massive post goblin of strange and uncertain times. We have now a huge opportunity in Ireland to make drastic changes to our culture for the fucking better. Okay. Number one, you know I I, I love going to fucking Spain. I love going to Spain when I can, especially to write, okay? One of the things I adore about Spain is the culture that Spanish people have around eating and drinking. You go to a bar in Spain and people aren't getting shit-faced. They're ordering a small drink, drinking it slowly, savouring it, and then eating tapas really affordable decent small bits of food that mean and and, and it focuses things more on gathering and it focuses things on conversation and it's just a, a much healthier enjoyable wholesome way to spend time with people rather than all of you getting shit faced just drinking pints I love cans I love drinking you know this from this podcast However, I was also raised in a very toxic system of a binge drinking culture and so were you if you're from Ireland or from what's referred to as the beer belt which is Ireland, uh, Poland, Germany, the UK. We're in the beer belt and countries that are in the beer belt as opposed to the wine belt 
tend to have a culture that focuses on drinking lots of beer and getting really, really drunk and food doesn't really come into it unless it's a kebab afterwards. And this is unhelpful and it's toxic and it's it's unhealthy because binge drinking isn't healthy. And I'm, like I, I love, I do enjoy occasionally getting a lot of pints and binge drinking, but I don't like the fact that it's my only option. I don't like that it's my only option. When I'm in Spain and I meet my friends there, if I'm there for a week, four nights of the week, we go to a, a, a little small bar, sit outside at a table, order food and drink moderately. And maybe then on a Friday, you go to the pub because there's still pubs in Spain and then you just drink if that's what you want to do. But you have choice, you have option and it adds variety. So pubs in Ireland on the 29th of, of fucking June 2020 are being given an opportunity for creative responses and creative responses that can actually change our culture for the better and most importantly finally tackle our toxic culture of binge drinking which causes a lot of deaths and a lot of misery and a lot of sore heads. So I hope that Irish pubs, instead of looking at this new rule of having to serve a a large and substantial meal, instead of looking at it as, where's the loophole? How can I serve someone a, a mug full of curry that they throw down the toilet and then they get 10 pints? Instead of looking for the loopholes, why not actually go, let's give this a shot. Let's offer people tasty, affordable food that they will actually want to eat and share with their friend as they drink. And we're not looking for the loophole. We're trying to enhance and improve the experience. Another positivity from it is I I can't see binge drinking working in in the post-coronavirus environment. Even when you go to the pub you still have to abide by hand-washing, social distancing. You need to be sober for that to happen. You can't be fucking ten, ten pints deep. The last thing you're thinking about is washing your fucking hands or how close you are to another person when you've had several pints. So a culture of nibbling, sharing, affordable, tasty food and drinking, we can absolutely do that. We've seen it with the fucking smoking ban, lads. I'm old enough to remember when I was I was too young to be going into pubs when the smoking ban came in. But I'm I was old I would have been in school. I was old enough to remember it. Everyone said, "No fucking way. Smoking cigarettes inside in a pub. That's what pubs are. They're smoky places and you smoke your cigarette and you put it out on the table and pubs are smoky places and you go home smelling like smoke and that's just how things are." How are you supposed to be in a pub without cigarettes? Are you mad? And everybody was saying this. Everyone. And then as soon as the smoking ban came in, and all of a sudden you had to leave the pub and go outside to this new place called the smoking area, it was strange. And then people started going, this is actually nice. Because the beauty of the smoking area, lads, it adds narrative it, it, if you're in the pub and you're a bit bored and 
you're just sitting down or you want to get away from someone or you want to see what else is happening, what do you do? You go to the smoking area. Let's go out to the smoking area. Everyone's standing up. Everyone's wearing their jackets. It's a different vibe, a different atmosphere. And the smoking area actually made pubs and clubs way better and way more enjoyable. By far. I couldn't imagine going back to a situation where people are smoking indoors. Now is that opportunity with food. So you go to the pub. You order your pint. You have a nice decent menu of stuff you'd actually like to nibble. Treat it like tapas. Maybe a few people pitch in or whatever. And you have affordable nibbles that simply force you to consume and drink slower. You're not utterly shit-faced. You're getting a little buzz. And it's about conversation, enjoyment and space. And We don't really have that in Ireland. We have go to a restaurant spend a shit ton of fucking money and have a few drinks or go to a pub and get shit faced on pints but there's no in between really in places like Spain and Italy their entire culture is formed around that in between where it's like are you drinking or are you eating we're doing both and we're doing them slowly another thing that's interesting about it that we could learn from is is And again, I notice this because I'm the paddy in Spain. But when in Spain, if a group of people are drinking and eating, they tend not to have a huge amount of carbohydrates in the food. Because what I do is I order patatas bravas, which are just, they're like round chips with self-esteem issues, you know. They don't know what they are. It's like, am I a chip? Am I a roast potato? Not sure. Will I have some ketchup on me? A bit of mayonnaise as well. Fuck it, mix them together, it's pink. They're, they're chips with identity issues, but that's what I order because they're the closest thing to chips. Now, that's me being an uncouth, bog trotting paddy who has to order potatoes if they're on the menu in case a fucking English person comes and steals them. But they, people there, they tend to eat food that's not like, not a lot of bread and potatoes, but instead it's fats and oils and cheeses. And that just. It doesn't utterly create a big lump in your belly when you're also drinking a pint. It makes the pint easier. If you're having bits of meat and bits of oil or cheese, then you can still drink as well. But if you lash into a lot of chips and bread, then that makes drinking not fun. So we could learn from that as well. And it's just it's just better. It's nicer. It's, it's fucking nicer. And you can still go and get shit-faced in the pub if you want. But this is an opportunity for options. Here's the other thing I'm really excited about. A lot of cities around the country are now looking at wide-scale pedestrianisation in order to allow for space. So if a little restaurant is opening and they don't have the space indoors, you cut off the cars from the street and now all of a sudden the restaurant is allowed to put tables and chairs out onto the street with appropriate... And, and people say, look, fuck it, man, over in Spain they've got the weather. That's true. But if you look at uh, countries like um, the Netherlands, you know, they have outdoor dining there and they have, like, little, little pods where it, it's they're heated and it protects from the weather and the, and, the, and the wind. And we can socially distance, but now you've got pedestrianised streets. And cars ruin fun in cities. 
they're loud, they're intrusive. When you have open squares where people can move around and, and live a livable city, people then want to spend more time in the city. That then helps the economy. It's all positive. They have this shit sorted on the fucking continent for years. Again, the city I go to in Spain, Cordoba, you could walk for fucking 20 minutes and never see a car there. Do you know? There's all these beautiful opportunities that I'm, I'm quite excited about. And I hope Ireland does the right thing and makes a kind of a mature, confident decision about making adjustments to our culture rather than the gambine shit. If a pub... If a pub owner looks at this new substantial meal rule and searches for the loophole, they're fail they're failing us all. And one thing too with this, like there's two types of pubs, and this this is a problematic thing now that it's worth pointing out. There's pubs that have big financial backing, alright? It's owned by a conglomerate and they have lots of money. Unfortunately, most likely, these are the pubs that will be able to open on June 29th because they have the money to either put a kitchen in or they already are serving food. And then the tiny pubs that are family-run, they're the ones who might not be able to open. And and what, what I'd say, if you, if you run one of these pubs, if you're someone who runs a small pub and it's your business and you're worried that, like... It's like, fuck it, how am I supposed to get a kitchen in? How am I supposed to get a chef in? Just take a look at what they're doing in Spain. Like, there's a place that I go to in Cordoba called Bar Santas, which is a tiny pub. It doesn't have a kitchen, it doesn't have a restaurant. Now, this place is consistently thronged. And what they have, and loads of small pubs in Spain have this, it's just like a a tabletop refrigerated unit on the bar so it's like a catering counter but smaller just this refrigerated glass thing on top of the counter and in it are five or six trays of different types of food and this place in particular specialises in a type of a potato omelette that they're famous for but they don't cook it in there They it's cooked off site brought there in the morning with other food and when you order food in this gaff, it's it's microwaved and handed to you on a paper plate, and it's delicious. So there's that opportunity too. I doubt you even have to get a fucking kitchen. Just look at what they're doing over in Spain. I'm excited about it anyway. I'm excited to see who will be the people that go at this creatively and who will be the ones who just go at it as a loophole. That's exciting for me. Although, you know, the negative part of me then goes, why do, when, any sh- when any good shit doesn't happen in Ireland, when good shit doesn't happen in Ireland, it's always because of utter mind-numbing incompetency on behalf of the local council, where there's some really bizarre law that stops fun happening. That's a, just, just, just a, an Irish thing. That's a real self-sabotage shame combination of Catholicism and colonialism thing that we have to deal with where it's just oh I notice you have ambition and goals what are you a fucking yank say 20 Hail Marys so this week's podcast is not about overhauling Ireland's uh, drinking system so that it's more like the continent 
But opening the podcast in that way is relevant to what I want to try and speak about. I'm doing a hot, I want to do a hot take podcast. A hot take podcast for me is where I make connections between two seemingly unrelated things and I get very excited about these connections between two things that seem so far apart. And I want to speak about an art movement known as romanticism. Now the podcast isn't just about romanticism, but I want to speak about romanticism. Romanticism was an art movement in the 1700s. And that opening 20 minutes there where I spoke about how wonderful Spanish eating and drinking culture is. What I've done there is I have romanticised an aspect of someone else's culture. And to romanticise... Romanticism, it, you kind of... You wallow in, in, in how, how unhappy and bad your current situation is. And you kind of look at the world that you live in and you go, this is dull... This is boring. And then you look at something outside of your current world, a different culture, and you say, that's authentic, that's brilliant, that's amazing. If only we had that, we would be happy. And it's it's also hipsterism. That's hipsterism. Hipsters, like I'm, I'm a hipster all the fucking time. Hipsters, hipsterism fetishizes the authentic. We live in a society of mass consumption where everything is churned out and made um, on a production line. So hipsters strive for what is the small batch beer? What is truly authentic? What is the craft beer? What is the craft fucking this? Was it made by a human hand? If something is made with the attention of one person and it's rare, then you can fetishize that as authentic and that's good and it's an escape from mass production and mass consumption. Romanticism is the start and the beginning of hipsterism. And it's a, sev- a movement from the 1700s. And me fetishizing Spain like that is romantic. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a romantic, rose-tinted, uh, glossy-eyed view of Spanish cuisine and culture. And when you do that, it's, it's, it's not an authentic view. I mean, if I'm being brutally honest, yeah, it's lovely over in Spain when they eat and drink slowly and have these options. But I guarantee you there's a Spanish podcaster and he or she right now in their podcast is fetishizing how authentic Irish drink culture is. They're complaining about nothing happens here in Spain we just sit around eating tapas and we have two wines and then we go home I was in the west of Ireland last year and we went absolutely mad we stayed up all night in the pub and I ended up in a field fucking on the back of a goat and it was insane that could never happen in Madrid and I guarantee you that podcast is happening and that person is romanticising Irish culture and to be romantic within the theme of romanticism you take a dull, boring view of, of your current environment and you fetishize something different as being better that if only you could have this, the world would open up into an oyster of joy. And I'm not saying Spanish culture isn't, isn't the crack. What I'm saying is no one in Spain the next day ever said, oh, fuck it, man, last night we had a load of tapas and then ended up nude in a fountain. That doesn't happen. In Ireland, it does the crack 
is is an integral part of our culture and the crack is unique to us and the crack the crack isn't just fun the crack is is a very controlled type of chaos that we learn from birth as a part of Irishness it's controlled chaos it's when you and all your friends have this very loud excessive explosion orgasmic explosion of collective fun that is to anyone on the outside could possibly even look like a brawl but no one's getting hurt the crack doesn't turn into violence the crack doesn't turn into injuries it's it's a this amazing ability that we as irish people have to control a ball of fucking burning chaos like a nuclear fusion reactor and not let it spill out I've seen Spanish people try to keep up with the crack try to keep up with Irish people they need two days off work afterwards it's it's, it's experienced as a type of trauma the crack they have their own type of crack but it's not our crack and they fetishise that that's why they have Irish pubs they have Irish pubs, you walk into them and it doesn't feel fucking Irish at all. They're just nailing shit to the ceiling. Nailing bicycles to the ceiling, like we do that at home. But they fetishise Irishness. But all of it comes down to romanticism. And romanticism is an artistic movement that started in the 1700s. As a response to a few things. As a response to in the Industrial Revolution as a response to urbanisation, as a response to secularism, consumerism. These were all new things in the 1700s. Big, giant fucking factories. People living in cities. All of a sudden, the church not being completely as powerful as it was. Instead, power shifting more towards factory owners and landlords and things like that. The birth of the modern world that we live today the roots of it you see in the 1700s around the same time as the enlightenment as well and romanticism as an artistic movement came out of this it was wasn't so much a rejection of these things but it was a response to them romanticism said we are miserable in our industrial society we are miserable you know if you're living in a city well, then I'm going to go paint the countryside. You look at the, the philosophers or the, the writers of, of the Romantic period, uh, someone like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who he fetishised children. Now, I don't mean that. That sounds dodge. I don't mean, they, I don't mean that way, not in a, in a sexual way or a physical way. The Industrial Revolution was... Like, almost before that, you nearly had fucking feudalism. So, the Industrial Revolution was when pe- people first started to... It's like you had a day job. You could, you could, you lived in a house that, if you were lucky, you owned in a city. And then you went to a factory and you worked a day in a factory, earned your wages and came home. And the rat race... The rat race is born in the 1700s. The monotonous day-to-day, go to your job, earn your money, do your wage, and the the meaninglessness that that can bring about. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau kind of critiqued that, critiqued 
it's it's when humans were like, you're now a responsible adult and you turn up for work and you do your job. And you're a you're a wage labourer. Jean-Jacques Rousseau's response to that was to fetishize childhood. The concept of the, of the free the free child that the modern world of the 1700s forces people into being robots essentially that work in factories and it takes us away from the spontaneity and freedom of childhood. So it took an incredibly romantic view of the child. Another thing you see emerging in the romantic period is that it's also, it's the age of, it's when colonialism is in full swing. You know, um, European nations, through industrialization, expanding their wealth, cotton is a big deal, natural resources, expanding, so France, Portugal, Spain, Britain, expanding around the world and pillaging and taking countries that aren't theirs so that they can steal their natural resources as a way to fuel the industrial revolution back home and then artists then almost I, I would view it as almost a type of guilt but the, they then romanticised the cultures that were being colonised so French I don't know a romantic artist like Paul Gauguin fucked off over to Tahiti and painted the indigenous people in their indigenous clothes Um, um, uh, one thing that starts to happen in the romantic period is the fetishization of quote unquote primitive cultures this harmful concept that's called the noble savage emerges at that time which is it's pure toxic hipsterism things like orientalism fetishizing things that are happening in what's referred to as the Orient which was a colonial name that referred to all of Asia and and kind of this idea that we still have some of it today we still have some of it today some of the problems of it this idea that people over in Asia have these magical wisdom and powers and abilities that we in the West can't understand and again that fellow I mentioned there Jean-Jacques Rousseau he's responsible for a lot of this um Jean-Jacques Rousseau posited this concept that 17th, uh, 1700s modern society of an industrialised society living in cities, turning up for work, working in factories had created uh, a, a, a spiritually divide form of man where because we were spiritually divide living in cities we were then prone to vices such as violence, drink and excessive sex and Jean-Jacques Rousseau would then fetishise indigenous cultures and say these these people who uh, will say African, African tribes he would view them as these people are close to nature original man is born completely without sin or appetite or the concept of right or wrong and these noble savages that we see uh, amongst the bush we need to be like them which is again it's just a deeply fucked up colonial concept that denies the humanity of indigenous cultures just because they're different and equates them with animals but Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his privilege was of the opinion that no these people are pure and authentic 
so he romanticized indigenous um cultures and and again like you can view that as that's also a reaction to secular secularism secularism being the separation of of church and state religion was still very important in the 1700s far more important than it is now but it was not as important as it was in we'll say the 13 or 1400s when it was all and everything so when religion and it's after the protestant reformation as well when religion becomes less important people like jean-jacques rousseau search for a new morality if the church is no longer the supreme beacon of truth then you search for a new morality in the noble savage as he would have said indigenous cultures who don't operate in an industrial way and you you, st- you still see this shit today in films I did one of my earliest podcasts was about a concept that's known as the, the magical negro which is a trope that's used in films where usually a, a white character who has a day job and is really successful this character somehow meets a, a really poor black person who didn't receive an education and even though this white person in a big fancy job has all their life sorted they end up learning these deep spiritual lessons from we'll say a janitor who happens to be black and didn't receive an education and the audience who's watching in the cinema then goes oh my god that white man with all his education he 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 looks like he has everything but how come that black janitor was able to reveal to him secrets of his soul wow that's noble savage shit that's a, a racist construct that you can trace right back to the colonial period back to the likes of Jean-Jacques Rousseau which we still have today it's it's a fetishization of what the dominant power views to be authentic and pure and free of sin but of course none none of it, it all of it is dehumanizing so i want to look at two separate kind of events or artifacts from the romantic period that seem completely unrelated but i actually view a correlation between the two and what i want to look at is One of one of the things I want to look at is is a moth, right? And now this sounds bizarre. I want to contrast a moth, right, which is like a shit butterfly, a moth, and the paintings of Joseph William Mallard Turner, who was a romanticist painter of the late seventeen hundreds and the early eighteen hundreds. And the connection I see between the two is. The 1700s was the first time humanity had to deal with with pollution, wide-scale pollution. Right? We now we're now living in global warming. We, we, the mistakes of the 1700s and the Industrial Revolution have caught up with us. But it would the 1700s are the birth of what we would refer to as the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is the current uh, geologic era we live in. We've had many geologic eras, going back billions of years. The Earth has had geologic eras. 
this is the first time that a geologic era, the event, the weather, the climate, this is the first time that the events of nature are being impacted directly by one species, namely man, humankind, human beings. That's the Anthropocene, anthro meaning man. And the birth of the Anthropocene is the 1700s because of the Industrial Revolution, burning fuckloads of coal, factories, and now you have new things such as smog and pollution and air pollution and dirty rivers. And why I'm connecting the paintings of Joseph William Turner, the Romanticist, and a particular type of moth is because both, I view both of these things as an indicator of the first signs of pollution and its impact on the world. Bear with me, I know this sounds bizarre. So the moth in question is known as the peppered moth. And this moth and what happened to it is often seen as it's one of the examples of change in an animal which really convinced the world that Darwin's theory of evolution was correct, okay? So Darwin's theory of evolution is a theory that would have been posited near the end of of the romantic period of art, right? But it's a theory in science. Everyone knows what it is, but I'm just going to remind you just in case you don't know. Charles Darwin posited that animals change and evolve by inheriting characteristics from their parents if those characteristics are beneficial to the survival of the animal. Okay? So, I don't know, if I live in a town where you live and die based on a long nose competition, chances are in a thousand years everyone's going to have long noses. That's a shit example. But that, that's Darwin's theory of, of evolution. If, if only people with long noses survive and having a very long nose is what aids your survival, then eventually everyone's going to have long noses. And the people who don't have long noses don't get to live long enough to pass their genes on. That's the theory of evolution. So there's a type of moth called the peppered moth. And the reason the moth is called the peppered moth, it, it looks like pepper has been sprinkled on it. And this moth is... A white and black, white and black speckled moth, right? And the reason the moth is speckled black and white is because this moth camouflages itself on certain trees that have a type of lichen on them. So do you know the way you'd see some trees that have a lichen growing on the trunk and it makes the tree look like grey? And it's not the trunk of the tree, it's this lichen that's growing on the tree. Well, the moth would stay on this tree and because its wings are the same colour as the lichen on the tree birds can't see the moth therefore they can't eat it and the moth has a better chance of surviving but something changed around the uh, the height of the industrial revolution 1800s they found in forests that were close to cities like Birmingham which were heavily industrial, that the amount of moths that were kind of peppered black and white, the amount of peppered moths started to disappear. And instead, these moths that were still peppered moths, all of a sudden they stopped being speckled and they became black instead. 
and no one could figure out what was going on. Why are these moths black? And what was happening was, because there was so much pollution and smog coming from Birmingham, the smog and pollution and smoke and the acid rain that was being created would drift towards the forests. And this smog, smoke, pollution and acid rain, it stopped the lichen growing on the trunks of trees in the forests. So this white, peppered lichen was no longer on the trees and now you just had dark, exposed trunk. Which meant that if a moth was the same colour as the lichen, then the birds are going to see it against a brown-black tree and they're going to eat it and that moth is going to die. And pollution got rid of the lichen, which meant the moths were fucked. It's like, I'm standing out on the tree now and this bird is going to eat me. So certain moths who had whatever genetic trait that meant they were born completely dark, they were now camouflaged on the trees that didn't have lichen. And they're the ones that survived and they're the ones that got the pass on their genes. So moths, peppered moths that lived near Birmingham became completely black and there was no more white moths, moths that were white and, and, and black together and they became dark coloured to camouflage against trees where lichen couldn't grow because of nearby pollution. But then they'd look at trees in areas where there weren't factories nearby and the lichen could grow on trees, the white and black lichen could grow, and the peppered moth remained the same colour. And this was seen as proof of Darwin's theory of evolution. It's, it's irrefutable now. It's like pollution has gotten rid of the lichen, therefore the moths that are least likely to get eaten are the ones that will pass on their genes, and their children then will be dark in order for those moths to camouflage against the trunks of trees. And it's it's what's known as an indicator species. You look at certain species, frogs are an indicator species, as a way to find out what's going on with the environment. So when you see the reduction in peppered moths and all of them turning dark, it means that pollution is killing the liking and this is a problem with pollution. Where did the paintings of Joseph William Mallard Turner come into this? I view Turner's paintings as the peppered moth of the art world. And I don't think he knew he was doing it. Before we get into Turner and explaining what the fuck I'm talking about, um, we're going to have a little brief ocarina pause where you may hear an advert. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So that was the ocarina pause. That means that uh, an advert went in there for some stuff. I don't know what the fuck it was. It's an an ad that everyone everyone will get a different ad depending on what what you're searching for on your phone. I think that's how it works. Um. So, right, that's the ocarina pause out of the way. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener. Um. Even though I mentioned earlier things are returning slightly back to normal and people are able to get back to their work uh, with the Goblin of Strange and Uncertain Times, I work in the arts, so I don't know when I'm going to be able to do a gig again. And not only... It looks like when I start doing gigs again, it's going to be a very, very long time before I can do a gig by its full capacity. A gig that's socially distanced is not a gig where it's a very, very expensive gig where it's hard to earn money, basically. So I don't know when my income is going to return to actual normal where I can do gigs and earn money from gigs. The other thing is I also work in television. Television isn't getting made at the moment because it's not a very socially distance friendly environment, so they're not commissioning new TV. So... I'm fucked from several angles, basically. However, this fucking podcast is what's... It's my sole source of income. This is the only way right now that I can earn money and pay my bills. And it happens via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're enjoying it, and you're taking something from it, I'd ask you please to go to the Patreon Give me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's all it is. This makes a huge difference to my life. It means that I can do this as my job and I don't have to worry. It's not nice to know not know when I can gig again. It's not nice to know that I'm probably not going to get a television any television work this year. Those are unpleasant things. But it doesn't matter that much when this podcast is actually able to pay... Like, what more do I want other than to fucking pay my way? I can do that now because of the patron and because of the patrons and because of ye being so sound and generous. So if you can afford it and you're listening to this podcast, please do. And if you can't afford it, you don't have to. Don't beat yourself up. Don't be guilty. I'm so thankful of ye for becoming patrons that I'm, I'm doing a new thing now where... Each month I'm just going to pick one patron at random and I'm going to send you a hand-drawn image in the post, right? A one-of-a-kind image that I drew myself and sign and get it in the post to all patrons. Pick one person out a month. Also, what I'd like you to do, you know, rate the podcast, leave a comment on whatever podcast app, recommend it to a friend. Those are ways that you can help me. And I've started live streaming. Oh, this is what I meant to, meant to mention. So I'm on twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. And 
I've streamed twice last week. I did a live music stream, which was unbelievable fun. This week, I am going to... Every night at half nine, on twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast, at half nine p.m. Irish time, I'm going to stream every night this week, and I'm going to do it to raise money for Massey, which is a charity for asylum seekers here in Ireland. I'm going to stream every single night, and anyone who's watching the stream, I'm going to ask them to donate to this charity and provide an address where people can, can donate. And I'm going to do that every night this week, half nine, so tune in. Having great crack, I'm exploring a game called Red Dead Redemption. But I'm not playing it. If you're thinking, oh jeez, I don't, I don't want to watch someone playing a video game. What I'm doing is quite different. I'm not really playing the video game. I'm slowly exploring the space in a meditative fashion and talking. Which is very different to playing the game. It's I'm engaging with the people that are watching and listening and creating stories as I go along. So it's not like watching someone playing a game at all. It's much closer to... It's this podcast. I'm just using the game as a way to tell stories. And to inspire ideas. And, and I'm loving doing it. It's so much fucking crack. So join me doing that shit. The idea for this week's podcast... Literally came about... Because I was live streaming the video game Red Dead Redemption 2 the other night... Because the sun hit the screen at a certain angle. And when it happened it reminded me of the paintings of Joseph William Mallard Turner. The scene, I, I just, I said it I said it to everyone listening. I said, this looks like a fucking Turner painting. And that's when this idea came into my head. It just arrived into my head. Turner's paintings. So the thing with Turner is Turner was a romantic painter. Turner is someone who was critical of the industrial urban environment. Turner was born in about 1770 and he was born in London at one of the most vibrant times of the Industrial Revolution. He he wasn't born into, we'll say, tenements or slums, but he wouldn't have been far off it. He would have been born into a poor family in industrial London. So he would have known nothing other than the horrors of urbanization. Now I've done other podcasts before about we'll say the impact the impact that the Industrial Revolution had on society. It caused humans hadn't lived in that density before. So it did cause massive waves of crime. It caused you know the industrial production of gin in particular allowed free access to cheap free access to spirits which caused huge social problems the industrial revolution in london if if you weren't incredibly wealthy it wasn't a very pleasant way to live there would have been poor sanitation pollution would have been disgusting there'd have been huge chimneys churning out things all over the gaff there would have been smog it would have been disgusting and miserable and not pleasant um, there was also the issue of when humans humans like I said humans hadn't lived with so many people so close so living in mass groups led to a type of a depersonalization where people didn't feel a sense of social responsibility 
they didn't feel accountable because there's so many people that you almost become anonymous. So shame, shame is a good and a bad thing. And shame has often worked in human society as a way to stop crime as such. When you live in a smaller community and everyone knows your business, you have more of an obligation to uphold your reputation. But when the Industrial Revolution came around and you had big cities like Bristol, Birmingham, London, people didn't know who you were. There were too many people living there. So you didn't have to be as accountable and shame wasn't as important. And crime and vice and everything came out of that. So it was a real shithole and Turner was born into this. Turner was born into the shithole of Industrial Revolution London of the 1700s. And Turner is a very important person in the movement of art known as Romanticism. And what did Turner romanticise? So as I I mentioned earlier, Romanticism is the birth of hipsterism. You look at the current environment you live in and you say, this is shit, this is making me sad. It's the grass is greener on the other sides. Romanticism, the romantic art movement, is all about looking at the fantasy grass on the other side. Like, if yeah, if I had to fucking say, what is romanticism? It's trying to use your imagination, imagination to paint or write poetry about what you think is on the other side. That's what romanticism is. Creating a fantasy that isn't real based on a fetishized version of what could be better, but it's not real and it's not attainable. So what Turner did with his paintings, he would paint the ocean. He would paint huge... Like, one thing you notice with a Turner painting, it's the complete opposite of cramped industrial London. Cramped industrial London is jagged and linear and stuffed together. Tenements, sharp lines, ugly. But Turner's paintings are these huge, huge, massive horizons of just weather. He used to paint clouds and used to paint rainstorms and used to paint the sea. And you might have one tiny boat or something. One isolated little boat. But ultimately he was painting the majesty of nature. And Turner, as a kid who grew up in horrible shitty fucking London. Romanticised and fetishised the great freedom and power of nature in his paintings. Now where do I see the connection between the paintings of William Turner and the moth the peppered moth that I mentioned earlier and I haven't seen I've never seen this connection made this is one just that just arrived into my head but I reckon I'm on the ball so the peppered moth is seen as like an indicator species this moth it changed its colour as a response to pollution to industrial pollution but the great sad irony of Turner's paintings, which I doubt he himself was aware of, because I don't think the science would have been there at the time. He was trying to escape the industrial city and the ugliness of it to romanticise and 
add emotion to the great beauty of nature but actually when you look at Turner's skies what he's actually doing is documenting the earliest forms of air pollution and this isn't me pulling this out of my fucking arse about 20 years ago uh, scientists in the Journal of Atmospheric Chemistry which is a science journal studying the atmosphere, the chemistry of the atmosphere they commissioned a huge study to analyse the paintings of great masters and to to analyse how they painted skies and the colours that they chose because there's no fucking cameras remember there was no cameras and people didn't really know what pollution was so this journal studied the colours of light in old paintings to determine what pollution was doing to the atmosphere because they knew that artists would be catching this by accident and Turner keeps coming up in this study quite frequently and Turner is the moth he didn't know it but there's a great sadness to it there's a great irony and a sadness to Turner's paintings that he would try and escape to the countryside paint these massive vast landscapes to romanticise and now more than 200 years later scientists are looking at his paintings and they're going the specific type of red that Turner used for this part of the world in this painting indicates a high degree of sulphur in the, in the atmosphere and they're looking at Turner's paintings and the different shades that he used to show that what he's actually documenting is pollution and Turner didn't know that he was trying to capture the purity and freedom and cleanliness the authentic fetishized version of nature and he wasn't even doing it he was documenting climate change as it happens if you're a long time listener to this podcast you'll know that about a year ago two years ago nearly I did a podcast on the eruption of a volcano in 1815 it was a volcano called Tambora which it was a massive massive eruption that happened in 1815 I don't think we've seen an eruption like it since and this volcano erupted in Indonesia and it left the world without a summer in in 1815-1816 there was no summer around the world because this volcano erupted and filled the entire skies with ashes and if you look at the later paintings of Turner the skies are blood red because the volcanic ash as it was projected up into the stratosphere it would only allow the red particles of light from the sun to get through so a lot of Turner's later paintings are blood red not just Turner lots of painters from that period uh, atmospheric scientists study their paintings to see the the colour of the sky and there's loads of paintings from that period where the sky is blood red that very very famous painting The Scream by Caspar David Friedrich one of the most famous paintings in the world I believe it's the most expensive painting in the world and one of them's missing but if you look at the painting The Scream you definitely know it The Scream is one of the most famous paintings ever that sky's blood red and it's theorised that the sky is blood red because it was painted when after this fucking volcano exploded around the world but it's a thing that atmospheric scientists look at Krakatoa blew up in 1883 load of painters painted blood red skies after that as well but yeah what I wanted to get at was the connection between 
Turner and this moth. Turner, in his attempt to romanticise nature, became quite a sad... It, I just think it's very sad. Isn't that very sad that the man tried to... He spent his life romanticising nature and ironically ended up recording... Pollution. Like so many of... And he had this thing for... He used to love skies that were yellow or red and he probably thought that that was just the sky at night time. But really what he was recording was... This is what the pollution at the time from London and Bristol and Birmingham were doing to the skies. Just like they were changing that math. So that's this week's hot take. Very hot take. I hope... I hope you learned about romanticism, you took something from it. Most importantly, I hope I gave you a nice hour of distraction where you just got to listen and get that lovely feeling of listening and thinking and the podcast hug. Whatever the fuck is bothering you or annoying you, you got a little release from it and you got to think and think creative thoughts. So I'm going to be back next week. I think I'm long overdue a mental health podcast, lads. I think I'm long overdue a podcast where I speak about psychology or self-help stuff. Um, go back and listen to some of the earlier ones. That's the thing. There's a lot of people that are new to this podcast. I keep forgetting that. If you're new to this podcast, always go back and listen to earlier podcasts. I try and make a point when I record the podcast to not have them too sequential. So if you want to go back and listen to a podcast from 2017 or 2018, it shouldn't really matter. They're all separate fucking things and you can revisit all of them. So please do that rather than just joining this week and waiting for me next week. Go back and listen to as many as you like. I used to tell people to begin from the start. That's what I u- And some people still do. Um, but I don't say that anymore because there's like 200 and something podcasts. But you're more than welcome to if you want. Go back and listen to, pick one at random, or go on to Spotify, and I actually have a playlist of about 60 of my favourite podcasts that were the most enjoyable for me to make. So, I'm going to leave you go. Catch me this week, twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. I'm going to be live streaming every night at half nine, every night, to raise some funds for Massey, Asylum Seeker Charity. Um... Give it a shot. It's good crack. Start a Twitch account and give it a shot. It's not too far off this podcast, but there's a visual element. And I might do some live music too, if the mood takes me. Yort. Look after yourself. Be compassionate to yourself. Be compassionate to your neighbour. Wear a fucking face mask. Do it for other people, not just for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 